here with my friend Dan Sullivan. The podcast is called Anything and Everything. And if you're a listener, you know that that is certainly an accurate description of what we talk about each week. And this week, we're talking about surrounding yourself with the right people. And relationships, Dan and I both believe, are the true currency in life. So why do you do what you do? And why do you spend time with the people you spend time with? And who will tell you the truth, even if it's not what you want to hear? And who supports you? And who do you want to do business with? And who has the capabilities and talents that complement yours? So today we're going to talk about relationships, collaborations, how to have those kinds of fruitful collaborations that can help you achieve the success that you'd like, and finding and choosing the right people. So Dan, you and I both value relationships. Mm-hmm. Do you draw a distinction between business relationships and personal relationships in terms of how you act or what you do? And let's just start by defining what those kinds of relationships are. Well, in a certain way, Jeff, because the coaching business that I've been in since 1974, so pushing 50 years right now, almost all my relationships, they're either the direct clients I've had in the program or their team members who have belonged to our company, or they're the families of the entrepreneurs. I would know you because of Joe Polish. So, you know, you're part of the connection with Joe Polish. And quite frankly, in terms of just having an ongoing relationship that's been going on for a decade right now, you would be a real exception in my life. Everybody else would be probably in the program or connected to the Strategic Coach Program. So right off the bat, I have a completely entrepreneurial center to my life. I just don't hang around with people who weren't entrepreneurs as a living, or at least they belong to an organization that was an entrepreneurial organization. There's nobody I know that works for a corporation or works for the government or anything like that. So I don't know if that's unusual, but that's just the truth about the relationships that I have. I think that in my case, although there are certainly friends that I have as a result of business, the majority of friends that I have aren't people that I do business with. One of the things that I'm sure that hurt me in business is that people would say, you know, well, you'll come out to our place for the weekend. And I'm thinking, no, (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy to do the work. I'm going to deliver really good work. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's a transactional relationship. And I think that there are some of those that have become very close friendships Mm -hmm. over time when there was a trust that was formed over time. Because initially it's about, you know, they're buying a service that I can provide. So they're supporting me financially in terms of my business enterprise and I'm delivering the goods to them that help their business. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing to matter with that. That's why, you know, you don't have to become friends with your plumber. You just want to make sure that they clean the pipes. And in the same way, in what I do, it's that. But I do think business relationships can be very friendly mm-hmm. and very fun. Mm-hmm. So Ralph Lauren and I are very friendly. I've done business with him for 36 years. I like Ralph. We laugh together. But do I think that we're close friends as a result of that? No. 
Mm-hmm. I don't. And there's a certain, I think, in business disposability about people. And I'm not judging whether that's good or bad. It's just the nature of business. Because sometimes you just don't need that relationship anymore. Or you're seduced by another relationship that fulfills that purpose and so on. Mm-hmm. But I think friendships are different. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you and I have developed a friendship. Mm-hmm. You know, it's never been based on the business aspects. I think it is conversationally based, though. Oh, absolutely. And I find that's another, what I would say, a distinction for me was the entrepreneurial, but it's people I can have conversations with. And they're wide ranging. So they're people who think about a lot of different things. You can have a conversation with them. And even if they don't know exactly what you're talking about, they have the ability to ask really good questions. Once you've introduced the topic, they're very, very interested in knowing more about the topic. And not just out of courtesy, you know, they're doing it because they're, oh, there's something new I can actually learn about. So I started off in life on adults because I had no playmates until I was in first grade. And I had already cracked the codes on adults before I got to first grade. And that is you just asked adults questions about their life and what they had experienced. And I mean, a, a typical example, I asked my father one day when he had ever first flown in an airplane. So he was born in 1910. And it was actually in the 30s. He had flown on a Ford Trimotor. If you remember, Ford Motor Company used to make airplanes. And they were three motors. They had one at the front and two on the wings. And there was still an airline. Actually, it still exists. It's the airline that goes to the islands. So it goes from Marblehead up near Sandusky. And it flies to the Putin Bay and it flies to the other islands. It's 100 years old. It's almost 100 years old. And they still have it, one of the planes. And then I talked to him what it was like. And he said, well, you know, not many people had flown. and But I could get him going for a half hour, an hour. And it kind of gave me a picture of someone's life. You know, this would be 25 years ago. I would be six or seven. And so it would be 25 years ago, someone's life 20 years ago. You know, and you knew people who had fought in the First World War. You knew people who had gone through the Spanish flu epidemic. You knew people who lived through the 20s and, you know, the Great Depression and everything else. So I found that very fascinating. And when I got to first grade, there were all these little people, you know, they had faces that kind of similar to the adults, but they were little. Took me about three days to figure out they didn't know anything. So there wasn't any point in having a conversation with them. So I went after the teachers and I went after the adults. I've always been adult oriented. You know, it's funny. I remember when I was a kid, I was about 14 or 15. And I said to my dad, you know, dad, it seems to me that adults are just screwed up older kids. <laughs> and he smiled and said, you're right. <laughs> and, and I think that a lot of people also freeze at a certain point in time in their life mm-hmm. and don't get beyond that. But, you know, when you're talking about asking the questions, I think another essential thing is in all relationships, personal and business, is listening. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of people that just wait for their turn to talk, but they don't listen. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that that's essential in business relationships and, of course, essential in personal relationships. Yeah. Do you think that listening is a skill that one can develop? How do you look at that in the hierarchy of importance in building good relationships in business? You know, it's very, very interesting. Actually, I've just spent a week at the cottage, so I have a lot of time to think about things. And one of the things I was thinking about was that there's a part of me that I always feel the same age. In other words, that I can relate to who I was when I was seven years old. And it seems to me that I'm kind of like the same person I was with, you know, years of experience and lots of different things. There's a part of me that never feels older. So I always have a future ahead of me that's bigger than anything that's already passed. You know, the big achievements. I mean, you do too right now. I mean, let's say, and I am going to say, that personality is a big hit. Okay? You know, in many ways, this will be your biggest achievement. Yeah. And personality, for those who don't know what that is, is the play that I wrote and I'm producing. Yeah. About the rock and roll icon Lloyd Price. And the goal is that it'd be a big Broadway hit. And I believe it will be. But that's ahead of you. Here you are in your 70s. And the big thing is on the horizon. And my sense is that this isn't an accident. This isn't an accident. Okay. That you can do this in your 70s because how old you were never mattered. That's interesting you say that. I want to know what you mean by that, but I have a phrase. Well, I'll measure it by the people that you used to be very, very active with, even in business, or they were active in their lives and they were friends, and then they stopped Mm -hmm. because they thought at a certain age they should stop. Mm -hmm. So it might have been a peer pressure that most of the people they knew were at that age or they had this notion that in certain decades you do this, in certain decades you do this, and then when you hit 60, you know, you're winding down and everything like that. And none of those measurements ever had any meaning to me. Right. I mean, I always say that I have aged, I just haven't matured. (laughs) And I think there's a certain truth to that because it's interesting what you say about the age doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, that's assuming you've got your health. Yeah. And I think that's an asset that people have to take care of is their health. But it's, I'm curious what you mean by that in terms of that age doesn't matter. Well, it's just like that there's no external factor, like you've reached a certain age marker, and that external factor now tells you what to do. Mm-hmm. It has no bearing on your internal motivation about what you're going to do next. I would say the other thing is that, you know, work as a constant companion with me. You're always working. Mm-hmm. You know, and I can remember, you know, even as a child that I had my chores and I had the things that I could do where I was useful on a f- farm family, which you had to be. And you had the same experience growing up, too, that children were an economic asset when I was growing up. Children are an economic luxury. No. Right. I mean, when you were growing up in the farm, you were unpaid labor. <laughs> you know? yeah. And the farm wouldn't work without that unpaid labor. Right. Yeah. You knew you were important from that aspect anyway, that you weren't a burden. It's almost an obsessiveness on the part of modern parents 
is that, is my child okay? Is my child feeling okay? And my parents never, I mean, they would never ask how I was feeling about anything, you know. <laughs> and the other thing is your parents weren't your friends. Your parents were your parents. I can honestly say my parents were my friends. Yeah. You know, yeah. in that we enjoyed each other's company. We laughed together. Yeah. And neither my sister nor I were raised to be seen and not heard. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as you had many friends that were adults, I did too. Mm-hmm. You know, now, of course, our parents' generation has pretty much died out. Yeah. But those friendships continued long after I left Akron, Ohio, where I grew up, mm-hmm. and continued well into adulthood until those people passed, that we were friends, mm-hmm. which was, you know, wonderful. Mm-hmm. And their kids who were my age and I are still friends. That continuity I feel very fortunate about. But upon looking at, you know, we both deal with entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. you especially. So when somebody is starting a business and they are trying to put together a team, okay? And oftentimes when you're bootstrapping a business, you don't have the money to attract the people that you think are going to complement your efforts or whatever, how do you advise people or what do you think about in terms of how do you attract people when you don't have the money? What else can you offer to make it compelling that people will come on board? Yeah. Well, there's two aspects of that. A lot of what people think about is that they think that having people working for you is full time. That automatically means full time. Well, not necessarily. Okay. It doesn't mean that. The other thing is that it's a question of whether you look at your business as a process or as a series of projects, because it's much easier to hire on a project basis than it is on a process basis. Yeah. Give me that distinction. Yeah, process means that there's a cycle of activity and this has to be done every day or it has to be done every week, where the real breakthroughs, if you look at your own business career, the breakthroughs came because of projects. You know, it was this customer and we had this contract and we had to get this deal. You don't make your reputation as an entrepreneur on processes that happen every day. It happens on big achievements, some risk to them. You know that how you do on this project determines what kind of projects you're going to have in the future internally. So what we did, you know, I mean, if you talk about strategic coach, is that we have a project and it's called workshops. Okay, it's called a workshop. So we're founding a new workshop group. It's like a startup business. We have a certain number of seats to sell. It's like the entertainment business. We have the seats to sell. And the big thing is how many people can you get in the seats for that group? And they're standalone groups, so then they move forward. Our groups go for years, then that's renewals. You want them to renew and get into the park. So one of the things I've found is that the number one focus for the projects is what does the entrepreneur want to do? In other words, what do you as the entrepreneur want to do? We all choose a different business. I mean, we have all sorts of different businesses, different industries. But I was fortunate that I had a lot of entertainment experience before I became an entrepreneur. And I began to see that the entrepreneur was an entertainer, okay? And that there was a audience to please. 
And the entertainer had to be sufficiently in the spotlight for the applause to come in the form of revenues, but also then renewals of the contract and going forward. I suspect your businesses, all your businesses were pretty much the same, except when you had the clothing business. That was a little bit different. But once you got into, you know, the video work and putting together openings for season openings for the garment makers and everything like that, you were in show business, basically. And I've always said that the proper psychology of an entrepreneur is that you're an entertainer. And you get paid a lot for actually very, very short results. In other words, you have a result and you get paid for it. And it's up to you to decide what the timing and the schedule is around that. But the big thing is that you should be freed up just to do the things that you do great as an entrepreneur. So my number one starting point for hiring anyone is, what am I doing right now that doesn't show me at my best? Okay. So am I doing any behind-the-scenes work? So is there 10 hours of stuff that I'm doing behind the scenes that really don't show up on the front stage impact? Whatever it is, I'd like somebody else to do those 10 hours so I get the 10 hours back for the front stage. So I see work very much as backstage, front stage. So I'm looking for anything that frees me up for the front stage. So front stage for me is writing. Front stage for me is doing podcasts. Front stage for me is doing workshops. And that'd be about it. I have three really big front stage, doing videos, doing audios, doing recordings like that. But I'm always pushing. I say, I don't want any backstage. I don't want me doing any backstage stuff. So at this point, of course, you're extremely well established. But when you're starting out, And even finding somebody for those 10 hours a week is a cost that you have to weigh heavily. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to attract the kind of people that you'd like to attract, be they for marketing your business and doing the things that get you out there, Mm -hmm. what can a business owner do, especially in the early stages, to attract people and, in a sense, convince them to take what they're normally used to getting paid What kind of reward can you offer to attract the best possible people? What I tell my entrepreneurs, and we have, you know, we were at around 26, 2700 before COVID happened. And by the end of next year, we're in 21. So we lost half our business in COVID year because of the lockdown. We were strictly an in-person live workshop business. Now, This year, we've totally recovered in the sense that this is going to be our best sales year ever. But we lost people that we didn't get back. And by the time we get back to the end of next year, we'll be back to where we were at the end of 19. So it'll be about a three-year recovery. I said, well, what kind of people are you looking for? Are you looking for mediocre people, average people, or really good people? I always ask them, what are you looking for? Are you looking for? And they said, well, really good people. Okay, I said, now. It's actually easier to get really good people than it is to get average or mediocre people because you can sell them on a dream. You can't sell average people, mediocre people on a dream. They just want a paycheck. So if you got someone who's really great, who would be in a support position, sit down and say, look, we're just starting right now. So 
if you're thinking about money, the kind of money you can get with the government or money with a corporation, you can't get that money with us. But this is what it's going to look like a year from now. If I get freed up and we work together, we can achieve this. If they're really good, you'll get them right off the bat. Interesting. So, Or less money. So really good people are easier to get with less money than not so good people. So in a way, it's the same way you get customers, you seduce with the dream. Yeah, because that's how they're looking at their future. Right. If I get this really great experience now, I'll get the money later. That's like a Broadway play, you know, it's like a Broadway player. You know, if we do the work right and everything else, we'll get the money later. Right. And so how do you find the right people? How do you do that? And we all know people that are good who would never, of course, take that chance, you know, to take the step backwards. But we also know people who have taken that step back and ended up profiting greatly. But how do you find and source the right kind of people? And when do you know that that fit is right? I was lucky because the first person I found was the person I married. Okay. And I'm saying that because one is I know a lot of situations where it was a husband and wife team to begin, and it turned out to be a disaster. Okay. And I would say the majority of the husband and wife startup teams I know have not been successful until there was a separate, not a separation, marriage separation, but that one of the, what I would say, the support person wasn't working there anymore. And then the business went on. And the reason is because they don't have things sorted out in their relationship. And there's enough complexity to starting a business that if you add the complexity of a marriage on top of it that has problems, then it really doesn't work. But in my case, Babs was an entrepreneur who ran her own business who was getting to the end of the cycle with her business. She was really, really, really fascinated with the possibility of the coaching business. And it really appealed to her, you know, and she really liked how unusual it was and how unique it was. And it wasn't a stuff business. You didn't have to have inventory. You were selling thoughts, basically. And I had already zeroed in on the entrepreneurial market. So I wasn't working with non-entrepreneurial clients like corporate clients or, you know, I was working with people who weren't the owner of the company. So we've always said our client base has always been the owners of their company. So then Babs knew people. So Babs is 20 times more social than I am. Okay, and she knows people. And then we started to hire people that we knew who were working someplace else. And it's very interesting who we hired first. We hired an artist first. The very first hire we had was an artist. Okay. And the reason is that I did these presentations, which were very novel for their time. And that is I had a diagram that was 90% complete. And what it lacked was the person's name when I made the sales presentation. And what I discovered with blueprint shops, if you went to a blueprint shop and you brought in a diagram, a ink drawing, black and white ink drawing, they put it on vellum paper. So there's a thin vellum and vellum is translucent, okay? So the neat thing about it was that you could turn it over and you could use magic markers and you could create all the color. So it was, you know, simple colors, primary colors. And then you could actually, in the same style, put the person's name at the top of the presentation. So it would be Jeff Madoff, 
I would say, strategy circle for Jeff Madoff. And then I would tell a story of what Jeff has goals. And then through a series of processes and techniques that we have in Strategic Coach, we get to the point where you are building an organization around your ideas and your goals and everything like this. And then I was good at presenting it. So we hired this artist who would supply all the color, and then I just do the final printing. It was very successful. It was tremendously successful. And he paid for himself right off the bat because I was still doing one-on-one coaching at that time. So I got up to about 20, 25 individuals that I had annual contracts, but on a quarterly checkup basis. Very profitable right from the beginning. And then we hired a salesperson who would set up appointments for me to go because some people would go for a year, some people would go for two years, but it was all, all the information was coming out of the client's head. I just had a process that did it. So we had an artist and then we had a salesperson. And then we finally hired a sort of a coordinator, a backstage coordinator. But we knew the parents of the artist. He was 15 years old when we hired him. (laughs) And one of the big attractions is we had a Mac and we said, if you come and work for us, you get to work on our Mac. This was 1987. So the Macs had come out. He had been working on Commodores up until then. And so yeah, Mac is like a spaceship to the stars compared to the Commodore. And then he became our graphic artist and he mastered all the software programs. And now we have our production department is 12 people. We have 12 artists and writers who do all the work now. And we knew them. We knew them. But we were selling them on the dream, you know. It seems almost like a cliche saying, but you sort people out really fast. If they don't go for the dream, they're not going to be a great hire. And how do you know if they go with the dream and how do you know if they're just trying to get the job? Yeah, well, trial and error. (laughs) Right. The big thing is you realize that, you know, the big thing about being an employer and employee is, are you the buyer or are you the seller? (laughs) You know, if I go back and I sell the dream, I'm looking for people who want to sell me that they can be part of my dream. So that raises something that you had brought up in one of our early conversations, which is the double sale that has to take place. And I'd like to address that because I think that's really important in terms of team building and making a business grow is people have to buy into that dream. But before you can sell that dream, you have to what? Yeah, you have to buy into it yourself, you know. And so my sense is, and I've got a rule, Jeff, and it's about anything, but I never try to sell anything that I'm not sold on. Mm-hmm. Because I would say that 80% of people who present themselves as entrepreneurs will be sold on their dream if other people buy into it. And I said, no, 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 no. It's like the what really happened, you know, in the book of Exodus when the children of Israel moved from Egypt into the Sinai. And the story says that when they got to the banks of the Red Sea, the sea parted. It was sort of like that, but not until the first Israelites were in the water up to their nose and then the seas parted. That to a certain extent, 
there's a lot of people who talk a big story about a dream, but they're not really sold in until they get buyers. You know, now you got to be totally sold. You got to be totally sold on it first. I have to tell you, just in terms of your big project right now, the Broadway musical, I'm going to call it the Broadway musical because that's the proper beginning of it. All Broadway musicals open on the road. <laughs> if they're smart, if they're right. smart, they open on the road. And the thing was that you were so passionate about the person. You were so passionate about Lloyd. You were so passionate about the story. So it was easy for us to choose to be part of that. I'm very grateful for that. But how do you know that that person who is selling you a dream isn't delusional? Well, and how do you know yourself, you know, that? Well, it's trial and error. I mean, one of the things that I think that's unique about entrepreneurs is that once you choose to go in this direction, it's a lifetime sentence. It's a life sentence. I've never seen anyone start off on an entrepreneurial career and then give up and then go back and work for somebody who were ever happy human beings. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that in our business, you know, we're a little far along the line when I bring this up, but it's one of the things that I tell people that if our team hires somebody who has an entrepreneurial background, in other words, they were doing a something, you know, where they were self-financing and they were out there. They had essentially created themselves a job, which I consider the threshold that you go across is where you're responsible for your security. I will sit down with that individual within the first week and I say, I just want you to know that while you're here with us, I want you to give us your best. And they said, what do you mean while I'm here? I said, I know you're gonna leave. You've been an entrepreneur, you will leave. The only thing I ask you is, for as long as you're here, give us the best that you have. They all leave, and they will come to me. Some of them don't do it, and it's a bit of a disappointment, but some of them have come and said, that was very crucial for you to tell me that. Interesting. Well, you know, you deal with a wide variety of clients, from medical world to direct marketing, kind of all over the place. Mm -hmm. But are there any unifying threads in terms of communicating and collaborating with these different kinds of businesses that you could share with us in terms of fostering a great collaboration? Yeah, well, again, I'm going to go back to the entertainment model. And I said, you know, there's one judge of whether you're doing a good job here. And it's not me. It's what our clients and customers are telling us that we're doing a good job. Because if they're telling us we're doing a good job, it means probably that everybody else inside is actually doing a good job. So one of the big things, we always point our hires towards who they're serving in the marketplace. They're not serving us, they're serving someone in the marketplace. They're helping us serve someone in the marketplace. So I said, the big thing here is when I come up with a new idea, I'm not going to ask you backstage. And I never ask my team members whether I think a new idea is a good idea. I go and start testing on some clients or customers. So that raises an interesting issue, and that is proof of concept. Mm -hmm. How essential do you think proof of concept is? Because on one hand, you have the dream. 
right? Yeah. But the dream hasn't really been tested yet. Yep. And as you said, it's trial and error. So how important a part is proof of concept? And define proof of concept for us. Well, proof of concept means that it's successful in the marketplace. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, quite frankly, it's somebody, <laughs> somebody wrote a check, you know, I have to update it because nobody writes checks. <laughs> <laughs> so the money has been transferred. <laughs> Let's say that. I'm ruthless about that. I said in the old days when I used check writing, I said, you know, the only difference between a bad idea and a good idea is a check. Yeah. And Lloyd Price used to say, there's a million ways to say no. There's only one way to say yes. <laughs> you know, When we had our famous lunch, you know, where Babs and I decided to join the personality project, you know, we were saying nice things to you. And you said, you know, I really appreciate your support. And I really appreciate the nice things you say. And he said, but right now I'm at a point where really great support shows up in terms of money, you know. And it was so natural for me because that's what entrepreneurism is. At that moment, you know, in the space when you're presenting something and the first financial support, significant financial support comes in, that's entrepreneur land. And very few human beings are willing to subject themselves to actually being graded on the basis of someone else actually paying for what they're offering. And I mean, that is, you know, the initial or early proof of concept is and it's always is yeah. that somebody is willing to write a check to help make it real because it all starts as an idea, no matter it being a play or a new technology or some other kind of service that somebody is offering. Yeah. So you collaborate mm -hmm. with people. Like, for instance, doing a play is a huge collaboration because yeah. I'm collaborating with, on the business side with my executive producer and general manager and lawyer mm -hmm. and sometimes lawyers. And in terms of the creative end, it's the director, it's the musical director, it's choreographer, lighting designer, projection designer, costume designer. And they're intermediaries. That's right. That's right. In some cases. So you set up this whole ecosystem, if you will, yeah. Yeah. you know, to help serve that, grow that, and so on. And one of the things that I think is key in terms of a collaboration, a fruitful collaboration, is listening mm -hmm. and also checking your ego at the door. Because if it's important for you to take ownership of every good idea that comes, you're not only going to alienate other good people, but you're also not going to achieve what you want. I call that the myth of the lone genius. Yes. Where people create that impression that they sort of did it all themselves, mm -hmm. which never happens. And some people, like a Steve Jobs, for instance, and actually Edison is in the same category, and now Elon Musk has taken the mantle for that, is that sometimes the greatest creation is themselves and the ability to market their own image mm -hmm. of being that lone genius that acts as a magnet for other people. And again, it goes back to your idea of you have to be able to sell that dream. Mm -hmm. And then you want to be on that train that's being piloted or driven by Elon Musk or whoever. Yeah. So the entrepreneur is in a whole different category. And 
do you see any consistency among those entrepreneurs who are willing to listen or those who rule with an iron hand in terms of moving their business forward? It has to do with, I mean, the question, as I understand it, and I'm interpreting it, is the people you have around you, why are they valuable to you? Okay. I think that's fundamental because I think entrepreneurs really differ in their attitude towards this. And what I feel is that I have a skill, and I'm actually developing this idea. This is a new idea because we have a idea that we've developed over the last two years, and it's doing real good for us in the market right now. It's a concept called who, not how. And that is that when you have a goal to achieve something, your job is to really give clarity to what is to be achieved. But your goal isn't to do the hows to get there to the achievement. That's other people. And I'm sorry, give us an example. That's I'll give you a really good example that all the talent that you have that's assembling for the personality team, and that includes what I'll call the team leaders in every case. You have the set design, you have the choreography, you have the music, you have the direction, you have the production. It's not their script. Mm-hmm. It's not their script. And without somebody else's script, they can't go into motion. Okay, so you're the one who is given the script. And you tested the script. You had the reading sessions and you got actors to read it through. And then you had the workshops to show. And it's a great script. Okay. Now, the real trick is to have all the other people make it their script. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, and to a certain extent, you got to kind of get out of the way of that. I mean, you're the guardian of the script, but outside of that, the full power of that script as it comes alive and you got a big audience and everything else depends on how much all the experience and talent of the people that you have is allowed to express itself in the framework of your script. Well, I'll call it the purpose. You've created the purpose. I was at a Genius Network meeting pre-COVID And there was a man there who was very, very successful, had huge real estate holdings, he had real estate companies and everything. Very magnetic, very charming. I thought very transparent. And he was talking about all the troubles and problems he had gone through. And then at a certain point, he broke free. And he says, I want to tell you the day that I broke free as an entrepreneur. And he says it was 20 years in. And I had gone through divorce, I'd gone through bankruptcies, I'd gone through, you know, lawsuits and everything. And he says, one day a thought came to me that 80% of the most talented people in the world are just looking for a purpose to actually express their talents. And he said, giving other people a purpose, I know how to do that. So he said, what we did, he says, my job is to give purpose to other people's great talents. So that's fascinating. And how different is that, or is it the same as selling the dream? Well, there's two things. There's the dream, and then there's how to get to the dream. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the more that you let the talented people get to the dream in the way that they want to get to the dream, my think is that the dream gets bigger. Thank you for listening to part one of the podcast. Dan Sullivan and I have a lot more to talk about coming up in part two. 
For more about me and my work, visit acreativecareer.com and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com. Thank you.